Hello, this is Gary Meese. I'm back for episode 22 of The Case Against. Had a two-week lapse. Had a lot going on and had some throat problems. And frankly, I just, if I'm not up to it with uh, cough, if I cough, <laughs> during the, the podcast it pretty much runs the whole thing so I'm if I'm having throat problems I generally just forego podcasting for a week or so and apparently I fell back on my discipline with keeping my throat in shape I've got to be like an opera singer to get through this uh, and uh, I, I missed last week but I'm, I'm back again um, I'm going to continue with uh, crickets and frogs in the background and I have to tell you that that there's a hurricane just to the uh, west of me and but it's pretty quiet here very rainy cloudy a little windy but uh, you know not bad not bad weather not terrible weather let's put it that way um, I'm gonna be delving into the LG Hollingsworth um, story and on the from the get-go I want to make clear that I have no evidence that LG Hollingsworth is involved in any serious way in the case at all uh, this is one of those dead-end uh, aspects to the investigation where the more you dig into it the more mysterious it gets and, but uh, there is no resolution at the end. There's no happy ending here. And uh, Mr. Hollingsworth has been dead for pretty close to 20 years now after a horrific car accident. He died at a very young age. And uh, so we have no way of asking for clarification from him. Not that we were going to be likely to be getting that, but, you know, he, he has no recourse at this point, And I'm not trying to pick on him. Frankly, I'm almost almost be willing to just bypass the L.G. Hollingsworth story, except it it yields some fascinating insights into the kind of mindset that seemed to be prevalent throughout this teen population in uh, Crittenden County, and not all the kids, obviously, but in this investigation, and in that they couldn't they, they they simply seem to be unable to tell a story straight the first time and they can't keep and they can't tell a story once and stick to that story they keep changing it constantly to the point that police are going none of this adds up something funny's going on here and the question is was something funny going on here or not it's not clear it is not clear at all and i'll put out there at the beginning, I revisit this at the end, and I hope I make it that far, that, you know, L.G. Hollingsworth was not really a cousin of Dominique Tear, Damien Eccles' pregnant girlfriend. And he seems to have had designs on her. And you can make all the Arkansas jokes you want to about this and cousins and so forth. It's fine. Uh, there's not much fact behind those kind of jokes, but, you know, go ahead and make the jokes. But uh, he was 
there that day, quite a bit of the day, having these interactions with Damien Eccles, Dominique Tier. He was there the next day, May 6th, May 5th, the day that Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly Jr. killed Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, an old patch of wood called Robin Hood Hills in West Memphis, Arkansas on May 5th, 1993. Uh, Miskelly confessed about a month later. They were tried in two separate trials in 1994. Were convicted, spent about 18 years in jail, a couple of movies made, a couple of really bad documentary, excellent, you know, excellent in their own, as far as quality. Paradise Lost, the original movie, is really quite well made. The problem is, is it's gives a totally false picture of what the case is all about. And I think it's deliberate. I think Sanofsky, Bruce Sanofsky and Joe Berlinger are fundamentally liars and, and shameless about it. They don't care. They have their own version of reality they're promoting and it has nothing to do with the real reality. It has to do with their vision of what things should be and how things should be perceived. It's pure propaganda. And Sanofsky's dead as well, so he can't defend himself, but he certainly had plenty of opportunity to do so in the media. Not that the media ever goes after these guys in any serious way. Berlinger's had some pushback in recent years, but uh, prior to that, he was just lauded as this genius. Anyway, uh, I'm going to read from my one of my books, Blood on Black, about L.G. Hollingsworth. And I'm going to say briefly that also that I'm, I'm very interested in the whole innocence fraud phenomenon. And frankly, I just simply need to buckle down and do some work on it. I was watching Exhibit A and, and False Confessions on Netflix over the last week or so. Uh, and then I would I went and looked up some of the cases and what, there was some real information on some of these cases and they simply left, leave out huge amounts of relevant information and you get a totally false picture of what these cases are all about. And it's not that these are special cases that I'm pointing out. They're typical. The Central Park Five case is particularly in the docudrama that you see on Netflix. It, it's totally a total misrepresentation of what actually happened in, in Central Park that night. Those kids weren't just, you know, hanging around having a good time out in Central Park that night. They were out there for malevolent reasons. They were out there to beat up white people. When you get right down to it, that is what it was all about. Going to have some fun beating, beat, beating and robbing white folks in Central Park. They were going to be going wild and And arguably, they got carried away with their wilding. Imagine that, and almost killed the poor jogger 
who was raped by somebody other than he was she was definitively raped by someone other than the men that were convicted of it but were they involved on some level the evidence certainly suggests that it that is absolutely the case what actually happened out there we will never know unless somebody actually gets honest with this and I'm not sure any of them are capable of doing that at this point anyway here we go with LG Hollingsworth uh, I got into I went into their family connections and family history the last time and so I don't have to go through all that again it's it's I understand it fairly well, but it's also fairly complicated and also fairly irrelevant. So I'm going to skip over all that. Let's just say that uh, Narlene Hollingsworth, who was one of the top witnesses against Damien Eccles, was, to, to keep it as simple as possible, she was LG's aunt. She was married to the brother of LG's father, LG Sr. And here we go. LG Jr. spent much of May 5th riding around with Narling Hollingsworth and hanging around Dominique Tier before showing up late that evening at the flash market laundromat on Ingram Boulevard which was managed by his grandfather's ex-wife, Dixie Hufford, also known as Dixie Hollingsworth. Uh, Narlene had made a tip to the West Memphis police about LG, LG thinking she, she, he might know something about the case. So the West Memphis police made contact with LG uh, the next day Monday, which was May, Monday, May 10th. Hollingsworth was a dark-haired, 17-year-old, ninth-grade dropout, recently employed as a sacker at the Big Star West Grocery. Uh, to help out Bob, Worth, Bob Ruff a little bit, uh, there are two big stars in West Memphis, Arkansas. One is Big Star East, and the other one's Big Star West. Uh, he seemed to get very confused about all this on his podcast. A uh, little, little tool called Google will show you what the status is of these two groceries. Was well, the last time I checked, it's possible they're possible. I haven't checked since I wrote this book, so maybe maybe one of them's out of business now. I sort of doubt it, but because uh, it's been there a very long time and it serves probably the primary grocery store in uh, the east part of town. Uh, anyway, uh, Hollingsworth was at Big Star West, which is well to the west of Missouri Street, well to the west of downtown. Hollingsworth had little gangster tattooed on his right biceps and a cross on his left first finger. The use of little gangster drew on his name LG, but the initials didn't stand for anything. 
No record seems available on the May 10th interview, but apparently LG said little that would allay suspicions. At the time, the police were talking to LG. Down the hall, they were interviewing Damien Eccles, who named LG as a possible suspect in the killings. Um, police promptly searched the Hollingsworth home on Macaulay Circle, just around the corner from the murder site, and confiscated a knife and a sheath and four pairs of tennis shoes. That afternoon, LG's name appeared in a tip from an anonymous caller taken by Detective Mike Allen, quote, who stated she had overheard that a Dominic and a Damien killed the three little boys and that LG, last name unknown, took and laundered, laundered their clothes. Caller stated that Damon <laughs> had body parts in a box from the children. The caller stated that she didn't want to give her name and that she heard that LG's mother was going to lie about LG's whereabouts. Quite a few misspellings and so forth in this. Uh, information about body parts in a box persisted well into the investigation, though nothing conclusive was determined about the notorious stinky box. LG said the box contained test papers from a Votec class. Also on May 10th, uh, police interviewed Narlene in her, at her trailer in Lakeshore. She told detectives, Detective Charlie da Dabbs and Lieutenant Diane Hester about sighting Damien and Dominey walking along the service road near the Blue Beacon truck wash about 9.30 p.m. on May 5th, which was the night the three boys were killed. She and her family had gone to pick up Dixie Hufford. So then when I talked to Dixie Hollingsworth, which is what Narlene calls Dixie Hufford. I got to the laundromat. She said that LG Hollingsworth had just left from there in some car. And I said, oh, that's funny. And she said that it is. And she never did say why. And I thought it was funny, but I thought that he had just left from there and they were coming down the street. She never did say why, and I thought it was funny, would sum up the episode of LG at the laundromat. LG had found out about the missing boys the day after the killings while driving LG to his first day of work at Big Star. Describing intuitive suspicions and hunches in her distinctly, distinctively vivid style. It was late. Well, when I come over back in this area again Thursday because I promised LG that I would take him to work because he didn't have no way but me okay when I come back down the street I seen a white car that belonged to a policeman or an undercover car you know and there were two others out there too and there was a crowd of people gathered around and I said that's unusual end of quote this occurred at about 10 a.m. at Barton and 14th the search was still under underway at that point for the boy boys who were missing and nobody had any idea what what had gone on with them where they might be uh, what had happened to them quote because they were all gathered up there and I didn't know what was going on so I went down there and LG was saying get me on to work so anyway, I went on and got him on to work, and then later on that day, he got off early. 
I know he come to my house about 2.40 or a quarter to 3, and I thought that he would be working a little later than that on Wednesday, but anyway, my kids started hollering about those kids, you know. And later on that night, he come over there in a yellow car with some boxes in them. Now, what was in the boxes, I don't know. The kids said that the box was about this big and something like this, and they didn't know what was in the box, but he said, don't look at it. Don't touch it, don't step on it, or I'll hurt you. Narlene had seen LG earlier on May 10th, much to the surprise of her interrogators. The day I, which the May 10th is the day she's at the police station. The day I run into LG, the day at the police department, he begged me to go in there and sit down with his mother, and I said, I can't do that. He said that I wasn't at no laundromat Wednesday night, and I said, yes, you was, I, he said. No, I wasn't. I said, yes, you was, because Ricky Hollingsworth, and that's what the transcript says, but Narlene was really referring to Dixie Hollingsworth, also known as Dixie Hubbard, not Ricky, which would have been her husband, Ricky Hollingsworth. Because Ricky Hollingsworth said that I had just missed you. I said, you better stop lying or they're going to get you from murdering these children and they're going to want to know why you lie. He said, all right, I was there. I said, I know you was. Okay. End of quote. Narlene told Dabs and Hester that the encounter had not been on Thursday as they had first assumed, but that day at the police station. Narlene explained, I went down there to pay my husband's fine at $25 that he got in trouble and he got a DUI, I think. Today I went down there to pay on his fine. LG come running out of the building where the police department, he said, you go in there and tell them that you are mommy. And I said, no, I won't. I said, where is your mother? And he said, I don't know, but she won't come up there with me. I said, well, I said, they will ask you some questions and you answer them. I said, they will let you go. And then if you start telling a bunch of lies and they catch you in them, he said, well, uh, I wasn't over there in that area that day. I said, yes, you, yes, you was LG. And then he said, I was, I said, I know you was. He said, if you start saying that about Damien, you're going to get in trouble. I said, well, the mommy is up there saying, stating that she was, Damien was with her all the time. I said, well, the mommy is a liar, ain't she? <clears throat> End of quote. Police didn't take a statement from the mommy, apparently referring to the never credible Pamela Hutchison, who was, Damien's mother, until two days later, May 12th, Narlene continued. He said, you seen him coming down the street? I said, yes, LG, and I am not lying for him. I am not scared of that boy. He said, well, don't you put yourself in that kind of trouble. Well, I'm going to take care of LG. End of quote. As Narlene predicted, LG remained under suspicion long into the case. Suspicions still linger. The next day, May 11th, police got another tip about LG from Robin Taylor, a third grade teacher in Horn Lake, Mississippi, just south of Memphis. According to the report on her phone call, 
This date, an eight-year-old student told her that she needed to talk to her about the murders in West Memphis. The girl said that her cousin came home, that he is 19, and that he had blood on his clothes and himself. That her cousin had something concealed in a box and put it in his car and told his family that even if they went near the car, he would kill them. Her aunt said she would lie for him if he was involved and tell the police he was with her at the time of the murders. That the police had already talked to her cousin. The teacher advised that this was a good and usually quiet student and it would be out of character for her to lie. Okay, that was the report. Uh, notes indicated the student was Sarah Hollingsworth, daughter of Deborah Hollingsworth. The cousin was LG, and two of the aunts were LG's mother, Linda, and Narlene. Also, Sarah was afraid her dad would find out she told. The notes also indicated that LG was thinking about going to Georgia and that he had arranged children's clothing at the table at the laundromat. LG was talking about getting out of town, but to Kentucky, not Georgia. Uh, his girlfriend had moved to Kentucky, and there's a whole episode in here about that. There was no other mention of LG having children's clothing at the laundromat. Most of the victim's clothing was found stuck at the end of large sticks thrust into the ditch bed. Police did not contact the Horn Lake Hollingsworths until well after the arrest. Detectives made a number of attempts to contact Deborah Hollingsworth, the mother of Sarah, on June 15th and drove to her house June 16th only to find no one there. A neighbor said they were at a church camp. Police left a note asking her to call. Uh, Detective Bull Durham finally talked to Sarah on June 17th. The interview took, quote, the interview took place at the Christian church camp near Sardis, Mississippi. Mrs. Deborah Hollingsworth <clears throat> Excuse me a second. Mrs. Deborah Hollingsworth, mother of Sarah, was present. Sarah denied ever seeing L.G. Hollingsworth with blood on his clothes and said she did not see him put anything in his car or threaten anybody. She denied knowing anything about this alleged incident. Other than rumors and anonymous tips, there was little evidence that LG did more at the laundromat than drop by briefly to get a telephone number. Questions about the stinky box may linger forever. The primary evidence the, against the West Memphis Three, the confessions of Jesse Miskelly, made no mention of any involvement of LG Hollingsworth or anyone other than the West Memphis Three. Questions about Hollingsworth's involvement remained purely circumstantial for decades. Then a couple of career criminals serving long terms in Arkansas prisons on rape convictions gave sworn statements in 2013 that LG uh, Buddy Lucas, who was uh, a friend of Jesse Miskelly and who heard a confession from Jesse Miskelly the day after the killings, uh, Terry Hobbs, who was the stepfather of Stevie Branch, and uh, a friend of Hobbs, David Jacoby, who was also Terry Hobbs' primary alibi witness, if 
Terry Hobbs actually needed an alibi, killed the boy. Anyway, the this these statements, these convicted rapists said that LG, Buddy Lucas, Terry Hobbs, and David, David Jacoby killed the boys after being discovered at a sex and drugs orgy in Robin Hood Hills. Uh, the story got some play in the news, but investigators did not take the wild story seriously. And I go into more about this later in the book, or my second book, uh, Where the Monsters Go. Back in 1993, however, Hollingsworth's inability to come up with a consistent, corroborated alibi caused serious doubt about his professed innocence. Soon after his first interview with police on May 10th, LG was given a polygraph test. The results of the polygraph show up in a brief report on the Callahan site and are as follows. Didn't know boys had been killed until Thursday p.m. when his aunt told him and last time in Robin Hood Hills was January or February says he suspects Damien. <coughs> the notes indicate deception in the answer about Damien. Well, it seems unlikely that LG would have gone out of his way to help Eccles. LG was on friendly terms with Dominique. He told investigators he went to the laundromat to get Dominique's number. Her standing alibi was that she was home all evening with her mother and not on the phone, telephone until 10 p.m. when she and Damien began a long telephone argument. On May 20th, police had received a tip that Dixie Hubbard used to be Hollingsworth had told someone that two boys and a girl came in the laundromat where she worked on Ingram at 10, 10.30 p.m. on May 5th to clean mud and blood off their clothes. Boone, the tipster, said she was related to one of them whose name was Hollingsworth. Detectives, Detective Brian Ridge and Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell visited Hufford, 50, on May 20th at her townhouse apartment. And I have to say the report on this is very uh, disappointing. Uh, it seems like Dixie, Dixie Hufford, Hubbard, Hollingsworth was a vital witness in this case as far as L.G. Hollingsworth and might have provided some other important clues. Apparently she didn't do that, but we're not really, it's not really clear what they really asked her. Uh, I'll read the report judge for yourself, but did, does, did it really address the whole idea? I'll read the report and we'll talk about it then. Uh, Ridge wrote, she reported that LG Hollingsworth came to the laundry where she works on 5593 in a small white colored car and asked her for Dominique's number. This occurred at about 9 to 9.30 p.m. Dixie stated that Narlene and Ricky Hollingsworth picked her up from work at a few minutes before 10 p.m. that night and took her home. We'll stop right there for a second. Bob Ruff will, you know, go off about how Dixie stated that Narlene and Ricky picked her up from work and didn't mention the six other people in the car, however many there were. There, there were quite a few. They packed, The little car was packed. 
It was an escort station wagon. So there was room for there was room for everybody in the car, despite all the noise that Bob Ruff made about this. But it would have been packed. And uh, the idea that he was going to mention everybody who was in the car is picking. She would have mentioned everybody in the car as people picking her up. Why would she do that? Most people would say, "Oh yeah." Narlene and Ricky picked me up, no matter how many kids they had in the car, because they were doing the, they were the primary adults, they were doing the driving, and, you know, and that's who really did the pickup, the kids were just along for the ride. It's just common sense, it's common usage, but this is the kind of niggling detail that people pick up on and make a big deal out of when there's nothing to it. But, you know, Ruff's an idiot, as I've said repeatedly, and a dangerous idiot. And he's not the only one doing this sort of thing. I saw this uh, uh, case um, in False Confessions where they, this guy's serving time for having put a uh, zip tie around the neck of this teenage girl and killing her that he picked up on the side of the road when her car was broken down <clears throat> and they throw the producers allowed people in the show to throw suspicions on the uh, her boyfriend uh, who chose not wisely chose not to respond and he wasn't fully identified but people in the community know exactly who he is and you know he has no defense Try to get a fair hearing on, on, on a documentary like that by actually talking to the producers. You'll be sorry you did. No matter what the truth is. Anyway, and so Ruff's not alone with this. He's just a particularly bad example of what goes on with this innocence fraud business that Roberta Glass came up with. I think Roberta came up with th this label, and it's a good one. We, she and William Ramsey have talked about it. Uh, and the more I, more I look at it, the more I see. Anyway, I'm going to get back to this report on what Ridge Ridge and uh, Gitchell heard from uh, Dixie Hollingsworth or Dixie Hufford. Dixie came home. Dixie came after after she was picked up. Dixie came to work later, and Linda Hollingsworth came in. Linda Hollingsworth, being LG's mother, came in asking about where LG had been during the evening on five five ninety three. When Dixie told her of him coming in to laundry in the small car, she asked if she was sure that it wasn't Richard Simpson's car. Dixie stated that she knew Richard's car and that it was not his. <coughs> ah, I was afraid of this, but I'm going to press on with this unless the coffee gets so horrible I can't stand it myself. Dixie stated that she needed to talk to Linda Hollingsworth, but for us to know that she believes she will likely try to protect LG. Oh, Dixie stated that we need to talk to Linda Hollingsworth, but for us to know that she believes that she will likely try to protect LG. 
Dixie believed that LG had on a white shirt and tie that night he came to the laundry. Okay, that's the end of the report. Hufford made no mention of LG or anyone else washing mud and blood off clothes. Linda was LG's mother, and there is no record of the police talking with her. And this is a good example of some deficiencies in the investigation. You wonder why they talked to some people and they didn't talk to others. Maybe she refused to talk to them. I don't know. It would be nice to know. LG said he was at Simpson's house in the evening. Simpson, who was an older friend of LG, initially denied that. LG was driving a car unfamiliar to family members. Why was he wearing a white shirt and tie to visit a laundromat? That's my question. Simpson did remember loaning him a tie, and Hollingsworth was scheduled to start his new job on May 6th. So I, apparently he was, by, he was borrowing this shirt and tie from his friend Simpson to wear to his new job. Why he was wearing it to the laundromat? Who knows? The LG story took a brief tour to Kentucky where LG traveled with Simpson to see LG's fiance, Liza McDaniels, who incidentally was best friends with Dominique Teer. West Memphis Police received a message from Sergeant Jim Doro in Caldwell, Kentucky on May 16th concerning Simpson and LG, who had been riding a yellow 1979 Ford LTD around Princeton, Kentucky in a suspicious manner. <laughs> this is a small town for you. Two guys show up and ride around and the police it sets off alarms with the police. They had rented two rooms in a motel. Liza's uncle and aunt alerted police about the tryst. Oh, well, that explains it then. Liza was found in bed with LG. Simpson produced an ID showing that he was a building inspector with the West Memphis Police Department. The car was registered to Tri-State World Ministries of West Memphis. Simpson identified himself as a 49-year-old building inspector for the city of West Memphis as well as a non-denominational minister. The sheriff's office there checked out Simpson's ID with Gitchell and sent LG and Simpson back to West Memphis. Off the top of my head, I don't recall exactly how old Liza McDaniels was, but she was definitely... very young girl. I'm not sure what the age of consent is in Kentucky, but if she was of the age of consent, she was barely of the age of consent. This whole thing with Simpson and LG going to Kentucky to visit this fiance, it's just one more strange little episode in this strange detour in this case. Anyway, Ridge conducted another interview on May 26 with Hollingsworth, who gave permission for blood and hair samples to be taken, said Ridge. LG stated that he didn't know anything about the murders and that on Wednesday he was with Richard Simpson at his house from 
5.30 p.m. until about 9.30 p.m. He stated that after that he went home just before his mother arrived home. He stated that he got on the phone with Dominie and was talking with her about the problems she and Damien were having and that is when his mother came in about 10 p.m. I next interviewed Richard Simpson who stated that LG was not with him during that period of time until Thursday evening. And of course Dominie said she talked to nobody on the phone until she talked to Damien around 10 p.m. that night. To make things murkier, murkier than they already are, the Hollingsworth family said that they saw Damien and Domini walking along the service road at about 9.30 p.m. that night while they were on their way to pick up Dixie, Hubbard, Hufford, Hollingsworth. LG seemed highly interested in Dominique's troubled relationship with Damien. By her own account, she argued with Eccles that evening as well as the next day. Ridge first talked to Simpson on May 13th following interviews with LG on May 10th and 11th. While Simpson's statements did little to bolster the various stories from LG, Simpson was inconsistent about LG's activities on May 5th other than stating that LG had not been at his home that evening. <clears throat> Simpson gave permission to search his home and his yellow 1979 Ford LTD, which supposedly had contained the smelly box. Police found nothing suspicious. He denied direct knowledge of the murders. Um, Simpson explained his relationship with LG said he'd met him uh, at Blockbuster Video after the teen had introduced himself. He felt sorry for the boy. Quote, his family very hard on him, unquote. Notes on the interview stated, believe that LG told of incident on Wednesday month to six weeks ago left and came back from someone very strong in satanic belief. Boy apparently hated LG. somewhat cryptic note made a clear reference to Eccles. Simpson took a polygraph test May 14th and said he knew nothing about the killings. He told police LG thinks Damon may have done it. Damien. They spell it D-A-M-O-N. Damon may have done it. No deception was indicated. Simpson talked to Ridge again on May 26 after another unsatisfactory interview with LG. Ridge reported, he advised me that he could not remember for sure, but he did not have LG Hollingsworth over at his house on 5593. Wednesday evening, however, he stated that LG called him at about 6.30 p.m. and requested that he come and get him. He stated that he thought LG was at his house when he received the phone call. He again stated that he was not with LG at that time. Richard stated he was with LG on Thursday evening and that LG spent the night with him. He further stated that LG spent the weekend with him and that on Friday evening he and LG went to a restaurant on Poplar in Memphis. He stated that LG did drink some beer and a margarita at the restaurant and that he also drank a margarita 
while at the bar. Richard stated that he did remember L.G. borrowed a tie and shirt from him, but that he couldn't remember exactly when he borrowed the tie. Richard stated that if L.G. stated that he borrowed the tie on that date, 050593, he wouldn't argue that, but he didn't think that this occurred on the Wednesday, 5593. Confusing enough? I think so. Simpson took another polygraph examination. Durham's note on the session said, Wednesday, 5593 said LG came over sometime after 5 p.m. to borrow a white shirt. He loaned LG a shirt and a tie and then gave LG a ride back home around 9 p.m. or 9.30 p.m. Said LG was at his house from 6.30 p.m. to 9.15 p.m. Richard then, give, then gave LG a ride home. Says not sure of the date. And this time, Simpson failed the test. Which indicates what? I don't know. Durham noted, however, that subject moved during test, yawned, and appeared to be attempting countermeasures to distort the test. Simpson told him that he had taken pain pills because he had a kidney stone. He then changed his story and told police that LG had not been at his home May 5th, but had come over that Thursday and spent the weekend. Simpson did not clear up questions about LG, which is an, which is an understatement, don't you think? Uh, Ridge interviewed a Simpson house guest, architectural engineer Laszlo Bigno, on May 27th. There was a, this was during Memphis in May, which is a big celebration in Memphis, and they were, they were, uh, having a film festival, a, a foreign film festival. They honor a country every year. And uh, that year, I believe they were, they were honoring uh, Hungaria. So they were having a, having a, a Hungarian film festival in West Memphis that weekend. So much for the Backwoods label. Honestly, they don't usually hold Hungarian film festivals in West Memphis. This was a one-shot deal, I assure you. Anyway, the Laszlo Benio on May 20th. The statement from Benio, a 45-year-old married architect from Budapest, did not clear up questions about LG. Ridge reported, when asked about the date of Wednesday 5593, he stated that he was living with Richard Simpson during that time and that he is certain he was at home during the evening. He knows LG and another young black male who used to come over. He didn't remember LG coming over on that Wednesday. He stated that he heard of the murder on Thursday evening when he was discussing with Richard his traveling plans and Richard brought up the murder of the three boys. He remembered that on Friday morning, Richard took him to the airport for a flight he made to New Orleans. He stated that some days ago, Richard became upset about LG calling quite late at night. This occurred last week. 
He stated that Richard sometimes cooked for LG. He stated again that on the night before the conversation came up about the boys that LG didn't come over on the night before the conversation. He stated that he once answered the phone and it was LG's mother. Um, and she had asked him to tell LG to call her back. So, so Binyo seemingly remembered LG's mother seeking him on May 5th and not finding him either at home or at Simpson's house. But again, Binyo is not exactly the, the greatest, the most credible source on this either. And May 20th, 1993 story in the West Memphis Evening Times, contradicting his account of hearing about the murders on, from Simpson, <clears throat> Binyo said he had been out of town when he heard about the murders. Uh, Binyo continues to work in his own firm as an architect in Budapest. Man, I haven't checked on him lately, but that was when I wrote the book, for whatever it's worth. Dominique Tier made no mention in any of her statements about talking to LG on the evening of May 5th. She said she talked to Damien on May 5th, starting around 10 p.m. Why would Hollingsworth go to the trouble of going to the laundromat to get her t phone number if he didn't call soon after? He had seen Dominique earlier that day and would see her several times the next day. But he apparently was feeling an immediate need to call. Why would he not act on that information? While he gave contradictory versions of other events, there was no contradicting evidence suggesting that he had not sought out Dominey's number. That's me asking questions. On September 20th, September, September, September 2nd, 1993, LG gave another statement, this time to John Fogelman. LG had moved from 724 Macaulay Circle, and was, which was his parents' house, and was living with Richard Simpson. Asked about his job search on May 5th with Narlene, he said, well, we went, uh, she was supposed to come over to my house, and she never did, so I borrowed Richard's car, and I went over to her house. Okay, and I come over there too early, so I took her kids to school. And then I left there. No, that was the day after. I'm sorry. And she come over to the house and got me, and we went over there. She took the kids to school, and then we went job hunting. He got a job at the Big Star West Broadway, which is near the high school. Uh, then we got tired and went to Sonic, and then we got tired, so we was going to go home, and on the way, she took me to my house, and there wasn't nobody there, so I told her to take me to my mom's work. So on the way there, she had a wreck, and we stayed there at the wreck, and after we left the wreck, we went to her insurance company. Then I went over to her house. <clears throat> no, I didn't. I went over to my mom's at work and got the key, and then I went home. Well, I stayed there until my mom got there. He said Linda got, his mother got home around 8.30 p.m. or 7.30, somewhere around there. He said he had stayed at his aunt's until about 5 p.m. He had seen Damien that afternoon. Well, I went over to Dominique's, and he was there, and I seen him before I left. It was about three hours before I left my aunt's. Yeah, I'd say it was about 1 o'clock. He stayed about 20 minutes. 
He said Domini and Diane Tear, which was Domini's mother, and Eccles were there, but he made no mention of Kenneth Watkins, who's generally been described as being there that day as well. He was a young friend of uh, Domini and Damien. Uh, Diane Tear told Fogelman that LG had been at their trailer on May 5th and May 6th. Fogelman John Fogelman, assistant prosecutor, asked LG, did you see them again at any time? LG, yes, I was. I said I was going to go ahead and walk home, so I was going to go over to my old aunt's to see if she was going to give me a ride. This particular old aunt was Pam Hollingsworth, Diane's sister. <laughs> There's a lot of these Hollingsworths in this, this account, these accounts. It's kind of hard to keep track of them all. LG said, and then I see Damien right there at the corner and Fogelman, okay, was he by himself? LG, yes, well, uh, I seen him before that. He was walking, I was walking over to my aunt's and him and Domini were out there arguing. And Domini went her way and he was standing on the other street. Like he didn't know what to do. And then I left there and went to my aunt's to talk to her. Fogelman, what about that time was that when you saw, about what time was that when you saw them arguing? LG, I'd say about 4.30. Anyway, then my aunt said that she couldn't give me a ride. So I walked outside and I seen Damien standing at the corner and I asked him where he fixing to go and he said, my mom's coming to get me. And this was about five minutes until five. And this is supposedly when Damien was with Jason and Dominie over at uh, Hubert Hubert uh, Bartusha's house watching Jason cut the grass. Or they would have been on the way about that time, perhaps, depending on how... They would have gotten there about 5 o'clock, according to their usual chronology on this. So that contradicts Damien's account of things. Fogelman, all right, are you sure that it was that day? LG, yes. Anyway, then my aunt took me home. Okay, was Damien, when you saw him, was he out there standing by himself? LG, yes. LG's story about Damien at Lakeshore contradicted accounts from the Eccles and Tear families and seemed to explain part of what actually happened. Eccles, which was Eccles being at Lakeshore instead of going home, and, and, where, and he, where he subsequently met, Lakeshore, where he subsequently met Baldwin and Miss Skelly later that afternoon. LG said he did not know the name of the street, but it was on a corner near where Baldwin lived in Lakeshore State's trailer park. Fogelman continued, okay, then what happened? LG my aunt come around the corner and she said, well, come on. And I said, all right. And so I got in the car and she took me home. Not sure what aunt that is. Uh, I guess it's not Narlene. It's the Pam. But we don't know for sure. And it's not that important. LG said his mother and a family friend were home when he arrived and they were fixing to go to the home of Mona Robertson. This contradicted some of his other stories. Fogelman inserted, let me stop here and ask you, how are you to, re 
able to remember all of this so well, you just, LG, well, every time you say another word, it becomes clear, Fogelman. But I'm talking about that particular, how do you remember that this happened on that particular day? LG, you're talking about Wednesday. I know what happened. Fogelman, well, I know, but it was, LG, a long time ago. Fogelman, yes, it was a long time ago. How do you remember that so well? Is there anything in particular about that day that makes it stand out? LG, no, it was just a day. See, I've been done with this so many times. Fogelman, with the police, LG, yeah. LG told Fogelman he had not gone over the story with anyone except the police and an investigator. <clears throat> Fogelman asked, Do you remember the guy with the beard that dress dresses real fancy? Which is in reference to Ron Lax, who volunteered himself as an investigator for the West Memphis Three, mostly because he was an advocate in, against the death penalty and Damien was facing the death penalty case. Probably you know, he's going to be charged with that almost certainly. And actually, all three of them could have, at that point, could have had the death penalty. And <clears throat> and you know, Lax was a volunteer, but he also was expecting to get paid for his trouble, and you know, which created some problems in the with the courts. Uh, LG, if he's an investigator, that's who I talked to. Fogelman asked LG what happened after his mother and her friend left. LG, well, I stayed there for a little while, then I called my buddy Richard, Richard Simpson. Then I went over to his house. We sat there for a while, and uh, I don't really remember. I think he was tripping out or something. <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but anyway. Uh, then uh, I went over to go to another friend's house, and he wasn't home, so I stopped at my aunt's work. Anyway, I left Richard's and he dropped me off home. I believe I'm not for sure. I get the days mixed up, but I know what happened. So much for LG's incredible memory. Fogelman, okay, let's talk about now before you said that you went to Dixie's place of work. That's a laundromat. LG, yeah. Fogelman, all right, which day are you saying that it is? Uh, LG, uh... Fogelman, all right, before you said that it was that Wednesday. Now, how did you get there? LG, Richard. I had his car, Richard's car. Richard was in the car on the other side, and I was driving. Fogelman, now, LG, this is where we're going to start getting into some problems. Um, Richard says that he saw you that night, and it was just for a few minutes, and that he didn't go with you to any laundromat. LG, yeah, he did. Fogelman, and your aunt says that she knows Richard's car and the car you came in wasn't Richard's. LG, yes, it was. Fogelman, why did your aunt say that it wasn't and Richard said that it wasn't? LG, I don't know. I have no idea. Fogelman, you're going to stick with that. LG, yes, sir. Fogelman, who was, began bearing down, who was it, Richard? Who was it, LG? LG, it was Richard. F Fogelman was moving into some of the toughest questioning in the case, though ultimately to not much effect. Do you know why he wouldn't say that it was him? LG, I have no idea.
Fogelman, why would he have any motivation not to say, yes, I was with him. I took him up there. LG, I guess you'll have to ask him because all I know is that we was together and he knew it and I knew it and we're still friends and he didn't say nothing about it. Fogelman, what about your aunt? LG, I couldn't tell you nothing about that. I don't know why she said that. Fogelman, you're digging a hole, LG. By the way, it's not real. She's not really his aunt. He, 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 she is his. She is the ex-wife of his grandfather. She's not his grandmother. She she is his ex-step grandmother. Fogelman, you're digging a hole, LG. After a long pause, LG responded, "That's the truth, man." He went on to deny seeing Damien, Jason, or Jesse that evening. Fogelman, are you sh and you're sure about that? LG, yes, sir, because I left there and I went home. Fogelman, and what did you do there at the laundromat? LG, I walked in and asked for Dominie's number. Fogelman, why? Because I forgot her number, said LG. He explained that Dixie Hufford would have the number because they were all related. And Hufford was actually Dominie's aunt. She was a sister of Diane Tier. Fogelman, okay, what happened the next night, the next day? LG, my aunt came over to get me. No, my aunt came over and got me and took me to Big Star and I went to work. He started work about nine and this roughly agreed with Narlene's account of taking LG to work the next day. Fogelman continued to express skepticism about LG's story, alluding to Fufford's account. I've got her saying that you came in there but weren't with Richard. You weren't in his car, it was a different car, and then I've got Richard saying, no, it wasn't me that he was with. Now, what would you believe if you were me? LG, well, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know why somebody would say that. Dominique told investigators that she and Damien, quote, took stress out, took out stress on each other, unquote, the day after the killings. Multiple statements concurred that the teen couple had a major argument over the phone late in the evening on May 5th. Were they arguing that Wednesday afternoon? It doesn't seem unlikely. One of Damien's complaints about LG was that LG had suggested that they swap girlfriends, which presumably would have paired LG with Dominique. Despite being cousins, they were only loosely related. LG showed up at Dominique's house regularly for months and continued to call her after the arrest. Diane Tier explained to Fogelman about LG's visits. He used to come over fairly often because he was going out with Dominique's best girlfriend, Liza McDaniels, and they would come over sometime and if they'd stayed out too late and if her mother had locked the door on her, They'd come over to our trailer and spend the night. Asked about LG's visit on May 5th, Diane answered, I don't know exactly what time he left, but they were supposed to be going to see about a job, and uh, his Aunt Narlene and his Aunt Pam both live in the trailer park too, and he went, I believe, with Narlene to see about the job. He went over to her house. <coughs> it was probably about 12, something like that. 
She had no recollection of any calls that evening from anyone except Damien around 10 p.m. Dominey was also questioned about LG during Fogelman's interviews with the Tears on September 20th. She did not mention LG visiting her trailer that e either either day. Fogelman, you confide in the LG, don't you? Dominey, that's my cousin. Fogelman, you talk to LG, don't you? Dominey, yeah. Fogelman pressed her. Okay, are you sure that there's not something you want to tell us? Dominey, uh-uh. Nope, I've told you just about everything I know. Fogelman concluded the interview with this cryptic remark. All right, well, I'll just let you and LG work that out. <clears throat> um, in an August, October, 16, October 2016 phone interview, uh, Dominique Ferris lightly dismissed any significance to her friendship with LG. She told me, uh, we grew up as cousins and he went out with my best friend. That's about it. Nothing more to it than that. She said she did not talk with him the evening of May 5th and had no idea why he was seeking her number that night. <clears throat> According to Ken Watkins, who spent much of May 5th hanging around with Dominique, Damien, and Jason after he had skipped school, we went to Walmart to play some video games and mm -hmm. LG came to Walmart then. We went back inside Walmart to get away from him. This description of events on May 5th, which agrees with no one else's account, would occur between 3.30 when Baldwin got out of school and 5.30 when Kenneth went home to babysit. According to Watkins in a September 16, 1993 statement, LG came over earlier that morning to talk. He just talked to Dominey. I, I didn't really know it. He was just talking to Dominey about moving to Kentucky or something like that with his girlfriend. He said LG gave Dominique, quote, a little necklace, a black one with a little green ball. Uh, Brian Ridge asked Ken Watkins, okay, and what happened at Walmart? Ken, Kenneth, we started playing games and LG came up. We went inside and looked around at some tapes. Ridge, all right, you said LG came up and y'all went inside to look at some tapes. Was there a conflict between LG and somebody? Kenneth. I think Damon, Damien said he didn't like LG. They're always talking about him. Ridge, so when LG came up, was it Damien's idea to go in and go somewhere else? Kenneth, yeah, he didn't want to talk with him. Watkins said he thought LG left during the time they were walking about Walmart over a period of about 30 minutes. Watkins' account of events at Dominique's trailer earlier on May 5th corroborated closely with other statements. His story about the late afternoon was largely uncorroborated and contradicted most other witness statements. <clears throat> the case records at Callahan, excuse me a minute. The case records at Callahan contained a recorded phone call between LG and Dominey on May, on February 10th, 1994, made after a commercial appeal article raised questions about LG. During a preliminary hearing, it was revealed that Eccles had named LG as a potential suspect. The headline, Inquiry, Trials Haunt LG Hollingsworth. 
LG was concerned because Baldwin and Eccles had tried to implicate him, according to the story. LG complained, My name's in the paper, Dominey. Oh, really? About what, LG? What, what's that guy uh, with Damien? Michael or somebody? Uh, Jason? That's the name, Jason. Jason is trying to say I killed them kids. Dominey, what? LG asked, Now, you know I didn't do it, don't you? Dominey, Little Jason? LG, mm-hmm. Dominey, don't worry about it. LG, now you know I didn't do it now, don't you? Dominey, I don't know. I ain't saying nothing. I don't know who did it. I don't have an idea what's going on or what. That pretty much sums up Dominey's whole attitude about this case. She told LG to not worry. Dominey reassured him that she knew nothing about the allegations and that Damien had said nothing to her about LG's alleged involvement. Then in March 1994, with the Eccles-Baldwin trial under under trial underway, a prisoner named Tim Cotton, who had been in jail with LG in February after LG's arrest on burglary and forgery charges, passed a note to jailers tipping them off about a major break in the case if it panned out. Timothy Robert Cotton, 26, was among those questioned in the first days of the investigation after drawing attention during the search. Like many others, but unlike either Eccles or Miskelly, he passed a polygraph exam and was cleared as a suspect. Nonetheless, police received a number of tips about Cotton early in the case. One said, reference Tim Cotton, 524, which would have been May 24th, White female called devised that male white, first name either Tim or Tom, is possibly responsible for the murder of the three-year-old youths and three eight-year-old youths in Arkansas, called advised that male white is into self-mutilation, has broken bottles and cut himself in the presence of his sister. <clears throat> his sister advised that, called that her brother had killed animals before and that when she heard about the boys, she suspect her brother's involvement. Suspect's sister name is Tamara, and she works as a cocktail waitress at the Gulfstream Lounge. Caller stated the reason she believes he is involved is that he works at the Blue Beacon Car Wash. And the three youths were the three youths were found behind the Blue Beacon. That says this note here. Caller advised that Tim has been in an institution and liked to play around with five to eight-year-old boys. Detective Charlie Dabbs took another tip on May. 27th, received a call from Sally Brady and Gina, Re Gina Riccio about the night the boys were missing Wednesday night and they were out driving around trying to assist in locating the missing boys. They advised they saw Tim Cotton from Lakeshore riding a bicycle that was green and yellow go into Robin Hood Woods at dead end of Macaulay and as they were driving around about 45 minutes to one hour later, they saw him again coming from the other end of Robin Hood and was wet and muddy all over. And they heard him tell some of the search and rescue people he had fallen in the bayou, was going home and changed clothes. They said he was a weird acting guy and just wanted to check him out. He was seen going in woods around 10 p.m. and coming out around 11 p.m. Uh, Cotton on May 8th told investigators he did not know anything about the homicides, but it had helped in the search. He 
He just started working at the Blue Beacon and lived in the same neighborhood as the victims, not at Lakeshore. He said he first learned the boys were dead around 3 p.m. Thursday when he overheard Gitchell. He passed a polygraph test on May 8th. Cotton eventually passed along his own tip. His note from May, March 4th, 1994 pointed to L.G. Hollingsworth as the quote, fourth suspect, unquote. The note, as preserved at Callahan, is difficult to read. And I'm going to try to, I'm going to have to clean this up just to be able to read it. L.G. Hollingsworth had told me, as Tim R. Cotton Sr., I state that L.G. had told me that was the fourth suspect in the three eight-year-old killing on May 1993. He was getting cocaine, like cocaine, from Mr. Byers, and he, that is L.G., told that a drug deal went bad, and he and the three young men to get even with Mr. Byers. To put a hit on his family, and he told me that he and Damien made a deal just to get the Byers boy and hurt him real bad, and he went on for about a week, telling me, Tim Cotton Sr., I wanted to know if he could trust me, and I told him yes, and he said that the other two boys was not part of the hit on the Byers family, but they were all together on that day. Oh, yes, there were two other people that helped the killers. Cotton offered to testify, that was the end of the statement, Cotton offered to testify in exchange for getting out of jail. Sudbury and Durham interviewed Cotton on May, March 8th. Timothy Cotton stated that around May 5th or 6th, he had left his house on Wilson Street and was going to a job interview. Along the way, he learned of the three boys missing, that someone in the rescue squad asked him to to help look for the boys, at which time he borrowed a four-wheeler and helped look, but did not find anything. <clears throat> On the 13th of January, 1994, he was locked up in the CCSO, which is the Critton County Jail. That later in February, L.G. Hollingsworth was locked up, that he and L.G. had received a subpoena to court in Jonesboro. Their link was that they were both potential, though minor, witnesses in the Eccles-Baldwin trial in Jonesboro. The report continued that they started talking about the subpoenas, and LG told him that he and Damien went to cult meeting together and that he and Damien drank beer together at the meetings and killed animals at the meetings. That the meetings were at Lakeshore, then moved to the old railroad bridge like you were going to Memphis that LG told him at one of the meetings an older man was there and appeared to be the leader. And I assume this would be, break away from the statement a second, uh, this older man who uh, seems to be reported over and over again, it's not here, but otherwise is reported as this mysterious Lucifer character, which I would put down as some sort of urban legend if he didn't appear so often from so many different sources. It's very strange, very, very strange. That later, back to the statement, that later that week, something came on the news about a fourth suspect in the killing of the three boys. At this time, LG stated to him that they were talking about him, that he was the fourth suspect. LG said that he had the knife that belonged to the boys, meaning Damien and his friends. That LG has stated a contract was out on John Byers, which would be Mark Byers, the father of Christopher Byers, 
for a dope debt, dope debt owed to him, but whoever was going to beat him up, count, count get to buyers. So LG decided to get Damien to beat up buyer's son. That later, Damien told LG that he had got him real good and two other boys that were there. That LG said, Damien told him that after the killing, he had someone pick him up and that person was driving <clears throat> a green and white van and that lived in Lakeshore on the backside near the sewer plant. This Lucifer character supposedly lived in Lakeshore on the backside. Police were never able to find this guy. I don't, I, I, I don't know how hard they looked. They did ask about it. I don't know if they, I don't know how much investigation that went into that to determine if indeed there was this Lucifer character back there on the backside of Lakeshore trailer park, which is a pretty large trailer park. It's not a small trailer park. It's, it's large. It's like a regular little crashed out community. Uh, the report repeatedly noted that Hollingsworth denied making these statements and denied that he knew buyers. Report added, <clears throat> excuse me a second. It is the opinion of this investigator that Timothy Cotton is under the impression he will receive some type of help or his case be dismissed if he can be a witness for the prosecutor's office. There is nothing to substantiate the statement given by Mr. Cotton. Police brought LG in yet again on May, March 8th while the Eccles-Baldwin trial was underway. Sudbury noted at 11.25 a.m. The interview consisted of allegations made by Timothy Cotton, whereas LG Hollingsworth had told him of his knowledge of the killing of the three boys. Uh, Mr. Hollingsworth denied having made any statements to Timothy Cotton. That's the end of that. It seems unlikely that LG never said anything to Cotton while they were locked up in a cell together for days at a time. Police, reluctant to believe anything from LG at that point, took, took his all-coverage denial at face value. And, you know, you have to look at this and go, they had a trial underway. This is new evidence coming in. Uh, unsubstantiated, uncooperated. I will remind people that among the motives that Eccles named for the killers, besides a thrill kill and Satanist, he also said it that it was um, the killings were a revenge killing. So that fits into that scenario too. And just because it's one, it can be all three. In fact, I would throw in the fact that it was a, for. Jesse Miskelly, it was just a, a, a bullying incident that got out of hand. I don't think he, I think that's what he thought he was going to go do, was beat up some kids. It's, this sounded like fun to him. <clears throat> With Eccles, he had Satanism, thrill kill, and maybe revenge. I would say with Baldwin, it was mostly he was long for the fun of cutting up little kids. Police then tape-recorded a portion of the interview starting at 12.20 p.m. and ending nine minutes later at 12.11. The interview did not delve into Cotton's allegations. 
Instead, LG told about a conversation he had with Eccles about two months, maybe not that long before the murders. LG, we was coming back from my house, I believe. We was walking. I do know that we were going. We was going to Belvedere, which I think were some apartments over there. I think that's what he's referring to, to meet up with my girlfriend and his girlfriend. Okay. Damien asked me, could I kill somebody? And I says, I don't think I could kill them unless they did something really bad to me. I said, I'd probably hurt them bad first. And then I says, why you ask? He says, because I'm thinking of killing somebody. I says, why are you thinking about killing somebody? He says, they're fucking with me. That's what he told me. I says, well, if there's some man, then you just go and you break his ass or you get your ass whooped. If it's some little teenager, you call, tell his parents or you call the police. I say, you don't need to do that because that's not cool, you know. You'll go to jail for that. And we keep walking and stuff, and he says, just say that you would kill somebody. I says, okay, say I would kill somebody. He says, how would you do it? I says, well, it depends. He says, well, what do you mean it depends? I said, it depends on what they did to me to make me kill them. I said, I'd probably put a bullet in their head, and if not, I'd probably break both their arms and make them wish they was dead. And um, I says, well, what's up? Or, you know, uh, would you kill somebody? And he says, yeah. He says, I'm thinking of kill somebody. killing somebody is what he told me. I said, okay. I says, you don't need to do that. That's going to fuck your life up. I says, it will mess you up altogether. He says, well, like that. We left it at that, and we kept on walking for a little ways more, and then he says, if I was going to kill somebody, I would tie them up, beat them, and fuck them. That way, they would know I'm not fucking with nobody. You know, I'm a straight-up kind of guy. And all right, so I said, uh, well, look, you don't need to do that, you know. All right, so we walked on, all right, and then the May the 6th, I think it was May the 6th, when I did talk to Damien, he was just kind of like sitting there. He was kind of nervous at Dominie's house in Lakeshore. LG said he remembered the date because he had been riding with Narlene when she was in a car accident the day before. That day we sat and I talked to him for a minute and then I left. And I came over there like three times and they were still, whatever they were doing, you know, sitting and talking. So I didn't say too much and I left again. Anyway, he was on the corner, sitting on the corner, and my cousin had run away. LG said Domini ran away from Damien during an argument. Sudbury. This is on the 6th. LG had described a similar scene on the 5th. LG, this is on the 6th. I said, are you still thinking of killing somebody like that? He says, no, I ain't. It's kind of taken care of. Don't worry about it. You know, it's okay. He said, you know, kind of fast, you know. I didn't catch it at first. I thought about what he said, and then that's when I realized that what he said, you know, he said it's taken care of. Strange spelling on taken here. T-O-O-K-E-N, taken. Once is an accident, twice. I don't know what it is. Anyway, LG believed he knew that the three eight-year-olds were missing at that time, but not that they were dead. I don't watch a lot of news, LG explained. My aunt told me either on the 6th or the 5th there was kids missing. You know, I didn't even know where they was missing from. 
LG had not mentioned these conversations in his many other interviews with the police. Police also found little corroboration from others questioned about LG's activities on May 5th and 6th. Rumors have continued concerning the deaths of the boys as payback for a drug deal gone wrong. Mark Byers was a longtime, small-time drug dealer as well as a police informant. Greg Day's authorized biography of Byers, Untying the Knot, detailed a number of Byers' drug deals gone wrong, violent threats, and retribution, and Byers' knack for bad decisions. Also, the Curtin County Drug Task Force was under investigation in 1993 by the Arkansas State Police over missing confiscated items, including $200, a small amount of drugs and firearms claimed by officers for personal use. The Drug Task Force had been spectacularly successful in a number of drug busts as local forces cracked down on drug traffic moving through Interstate 55 and 40. Critics have seized upon involvement of drug task force members in the murder investigation to suggest that the police work was tainted, particularly in dealings with buyers. And look at, look at, the investigation was over, I'm not excusing it, but it was over a missing $200, a little bit of drugs, and some guns that were missing. That's not exactly some huge, huge deal. I'm not saying people shouldn't lose their jobs for it, but it's not some sort of widespread corruption. It's about what you would expect to happen uh, in, in a police department over a period of time where big, big drug deals are being uh, busted. And they had some very big drug deals busted and a little bit goes missing here and there. Not really a surprise. Still, there was no evidence beyond Cotton's statement that the killers are LG had dealings with buyers. Giving the looming size of buyers, who's 6'5", and just frankly just a huge scary guy, it's hard to imagine a couple of relatively small teenagers planning to beat him up, which would explain why they might target his small eight-year-old son. The mysterious leader of the Lakeshore Witch Cult was described as an older man. Other statements have located Lucifer, Lucifer or Lucifer with widely varying descriptions as living on a back lot in Lakeshore or somewhere in Marion. Did this fabled creature actually exist or, and did he drive a green and white van? Seems like that could have been checked out easily enough. Cotton did not testify. Police apparently did not give his statement a great deal of credence. Similarly, police have treated all statements from LG with justifiable skepticism except for his denials about Cotton's story. The many contradictions in, in LG's stories ultimately only confuse matters as LG never emerged as a clear suspect. In a case filled with unreliable potential witnesses, LG Hollingsworth was just another kid who seemed to be making up much of the story as he went along. LG Hollingsworth Jr. was killed in a vehicle accident on October 26th. 2001. Questions about the fourth suspect remain. And so thus ends episode 22 of The Case Against.